0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show.
1: Don't forget how you were raised.
2: Britain and France had declared war on Germany.
0: It's just life, Charlotte.
1: Do you paint happy moments or just the sad ones?
0: The sad ones always feel more true.
3: What is the function of art? Do not deform what is already
0: perfect. How can
2: that be taught? Maybe not taught, but learned.
1: Are you an artist?
0: Drawing is more of a hobby for Charlotte.
1: Miss Solomon, I'm sure you appreciate how competitive our school is. There is the unfortunate matter of your race
0: another one of my artistic deformities.
1: Are you the girl? It's as though she wants something from death.
0: You have no idea how hard a life in art is. Especially now.
4: You can't go out there. They're rounding up Jewish men all over the city.
1: You'll pack light. No one can think you're leaving for good.
2: I'll find a way for us to be reunited.
5: Hello, Charlotte. Welcome to France.
1: There's so much sun, so much light.
4: Only by doing something mad can I hope to stay sane. I'm going to paint the story of my life. And I don't know how much time I have left.
2: Has someone made something like this before?
4: I'll put everything I have into it, everything beautiful and everything hideous.
3: To live for today and be hopeful for tomorrow, which is what we are all doing here.
4: is not that life loves us, but that we love life.
0: And those were scenes from Charlotte, a new animated dramatic feature based on the real life of Charlotte Solomon, played by Kira Knightley, A young German-Jewish artist who flees Berlin to France on the eve of the Second World War and her life story she creates visually is considered the first graphic novel in history. And Charlotte's grandfather, portrayed by veteran acting legend Jim Broadbent, is our guest on the show. The British actor, phoning in from London, talks about Charlotte and another film he stars in, likewise opening this coming week, the Duke. And yet another true story touching on the life and activism of mid-20th century forgotten working-class hero Campton Button, a 60-year-old taxi driver charged with stealing Spanish artist Francisco Goya's portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery in London back then and why, says Broadbent, best known for gangs of New York, Moulin Rouge, the unfortunate spouse of Meryl Streep's Margaret Thatcher in *The Iron Lady*, and in *The Duke* as the husband of a dismayed Helen Mirren. Quote, That's probably the main thing I suppose that attracted me to the part—that I like his zest for life, his irreverence, and his naughtiness, and his love of people. That were all in this together. First, some scenes from *The Duke*, then Jim Broadbent who has some surprising revelations about how personal it was for him portraying Bunton, who emerged from obscurity and scorn to urban legend, even referenced in the James Bond movie, Dr. No.
1: I'm tackling social injustice. I'm like Robin Hood.
0: You're an idiot.
1: The taxpayer paid for that bin. They could have given thousands to war widows and pensioners. It's for the greater good of mankind. Mankind?
4: What about your own kind? Will the defendant please stand? Kempton Bunton, you were charged that on the 21st of March 1961, you stole from the National Gallery a priceless portrait of the Duke of Wellington by Francisco José de Goya.
1: Not very good, is it? We're convinced that the Goya has been stolen by a highly professional international criminal gang.
4: Mind your boomers?
1: Almost certainly a trained commando. (coughs) You are right? Bit of biscuit. One problem. What's that? Your mother. I can explain. It's the shock.
4: Shock, yes, I'm shocked there's a stolen masterpiece in my wardrobe. What's he actually
1: asking for? £140,000. For what? Charity. Good grief.
0: I'm living with a madman. How long will you get? I don't
4: know. know. Ten years.
0: You could have told me. We could have dealt with it together.
2: You married Jan. I had to marry. I had to marry. It was love. He is not a thief. He borrowed your goya
1: to do a bit of good in this world. You campaign for pensioners and war veterans. Every time someone gets cut off from the rest of us, this country becomes a foot shorter. All my life I've looked out for other people and got into trouble for it. But I had faith, not in God, but in people.
5: How do you plead?
1: Not guilty. Yes! For those unfamiliar with
5: court proceedings, that was the plea,
1: not the verdict.
0: (laughs) Hello and welcome, Jim Broadbent.
1: Hello. Great, very nice to meet
0: you. What is it about the real person, Kempton Button, that led you to want to portray him in The Duke? And in what ways did you relate to Button or not to get inside his head and play him?
1: Oh, Kempton Button was the, um, it's, a, it's all a real person. It's, a, uh, it's all, the story of The Duke is based on the, the real life story of the, of, um, the theft of the newly acquired Goya portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery in London in 1961. And after it was stolen, it was the man who stole it, held it to ransom and said, we'll give it back if you give free TV licenses to old age pensioners. Uh, So he was a sort of Robin Hood character and he was a wonderful um, uh, sort of, Personable, easy, diff- um, but con- confrontational, complicated man. As a working class, is an uh, autodidact, but who wrote wrote plays, none of which got ever got produced. But he um, was passionate about helping other people and and being um, a, a sort of noble in that in that way. And it, this, the script of this story of the robbery and the and the holding it to ransom was beautifully written and it uh, and this fantastic character and his um and his family and his his wife played by Helen Mirren in the film is the the whole uh, world that is created by these great writers is was made the whole idea of playing the character irresistible and and then added to that the wonderful director we had Roger Michel who sadly died which is really Heartbreaking and shocking in the extreme. Um, but he is a wonderful director. So everything about the uh, project was irresistible to me from the moment I started reading the first page, really.
0: And how would you say Button was a reflection of his own historical moment in time and at the beginning of the 60s with the Beatles and the emergence of a nonconformist culture?
1: The film takes place in, um, the story takes place in Newcastle, which is in the northeast of uh, England. And it's probably, um, at that time, it was about five years behind uh, London. Mm. Um, so the, uh, it was, it's not the swinging 60s by any uh-huh. means. Okay. It, was, it was the, it was, that was beginning to come in, but it actually, It was more like the 1950s, 1955. The fashions hadn't caught up with Carnaby Street and the Beatles and all that. It was was more of a post-war feel to it. And Roger, um, the director, um, was particularly trying to um, focus on that element of it being uh, um, a, a poor poverty stricken and there's not not that sort of excitement of the early sixties that came later
0: and in terms of the challenges of playing a real person, what were those challenges for you of say portraying Richard Nixon and dirty tricks
1: um I didn't do that <laughs> no there was a, I, did, I did at some point there was a, an inquiry about that many years ago and I, and it never never oh. came. <laughs> it came to fruition. I never got a script, but it somehow found its way into the Internet. Yes. <laughs> that would have been interesting. I'd have loved to have had a go.
0: And getting back to the Duke, would you say you may have been drawn to him in connection with your father, Roy, quite a determined social activist himself who used his inheritance to set up a commune during the wharf for conscientious objectors yeah. and whom you've described as, quote, quite an anarchic spirit.
1: Yes, he was, um, he was, he did, what I, talking about my father or about Kempton? They it's, were both anarchic, yeah. they were both anarchic spirits, you're quite yeah. right. And, um, yes, he was, he, he was, I think he had been, and, and initially with the outbreak of war, I think he was and quite politically uh, active and um but on on the whole he was uh, when he didn't trust politicians and it was the and I remember the atmosphere when I was growing up and when, when I became aware of politics in the I suppose in the 50s 60s my father's uh, attitude would be a, a plague on all their houses really mm-hmm. he he didn't um, trust any of the british politicians who are being presented to us as the saviors um but uh, i suppose there's a there's, i've taken a bit of that that sort of a, um mistrust about what you're being presented with and uh, and there's a sort of my father had a sort of anti-establishment quality which uh, i think actors should have really and, and we shouldn't be part of the establishment. We should be challenging it one way or another.
0: And in further drawing possible connections for you with Bunton, you once said, quote, I like the idea of actors not being part of the establishment. We're vagabonds and rogues, and we're not part of the authorities and establishment. What can you say about that in relation to the Duke?
1: Well, that's... Um, that's this is, uh, Kempton... Entirely fulfills that brief, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I mean, uh, and I think that's probably um, the main thing, I suppose, that uh, attracted me to the part. Really, that uh, I, I like his uh, his zest for life and his uh, irreverence and his naughtiness and his um, and his love of um, people. I'm thinking, you no, know, we're all in this game together. Let's uh, let's make the most of it and not be um, uh, negative and uh, and vicious. Or, um, and it's, uh, and it's, uh, he's got a lovely quality, which the writers have brought out.
0: Now, though Benton seems to be ignored when embarking on his social crusades, at one point with his trial, he became quite an urban legend. What do you think accounted for that mass embrace of him even entering popular culture, referenced in the 1962 James Bond, Dr. No, with that same painting displayed in No's lair.
1: Yeah, I think he was the, um, I mean, when it was refer- the, the stealing of the painting was a big, big story at the time. It was the most money the government, the nation had ever spent on a, a painting and it was of the Duke of Wellington, in a national hero, and it was put in the National Gallery on on display, and it was the it was a big big story for the stealing of it, um, and and the fact that it was you know, ransom letters that was was sent to newspapers, and and so it was a then when he actually got in on into trial, and he was the trial at the Old Bailey, and you know, it was a a big a big deal in and he had found his audience you know and he was found his platform and he could actually um from that position uh make his voice heard really for the first time which is what he had longed to do um, in many ways but now at last because he had been brought to trial he people would listen to him and it was a with great comedic effect he was a very um, a witty man, and he uh, and he ran rings round the barristers.
0: And what about Charlotte? What drew you to that film?
1: Oh, Charlotte, the uh, the, the anima- animation yes, animation. Yeah, um Yes, I haven't I haven't seen it, and, and it was some time ago, and not, I didn't know it was opening now. Yeah.
0: I'll
1: have to catch up with that. And that, that that's a um, that's another true story, which is beautifully um uh, transposed on to into a screenplay um, um about this artist who um in the second world war was uh, it's it was some years ago that I did it I mean, <laughs> okay I, I I don't want to get the story wrong because okay. I can't remember it exactly right so uh, so you'll have to forgive me. It, uh, but it was a very, it was a very moving, moving and r- rather wonderful story of this artist who um, uh, depicted her whole uh, sort of experience of being on the run from the Nazis uh, in the Second World War. I think.
0: And speaking of which, perhaps not unrelated, somewhat of a rebel yourself, like Bunting. You turned down an Order of the British Empire award, saying your father would have been proud of you turning it down. Please elaborate.
1: Well, yeah, I think is what I've already said, really, about the anti-establishment qualities of it. But um, there's, I really turned it down because I couldn't think of any reason to accept it. Really, <laughs> uh, um, it's, uh, and I, I've had, uh, I've been extremely spoilt in my career and, and all sorts of um you know prizes and um, treats and being well paid for it and and i think the those awards uh, should go to people who um absolutely have put themselves out and gone you know, the extra mile for other people and and deserve it and i've, I've uh, been very lucky really they wouldn't know um, yeah, the other Reason of turning it down. It. Some people have said they've ten, accepted it because of vanity. Well, I turned it down because of vanity. Cause it wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't have wouldn't have suited me really. It Wouldn't have been a good look.
0: And any last word on the Duke for audiences in a tribute to Kempton Button, his life and his persistence in challenging the way things are or should be.
1: I think that's a. a I think it. It's a, a, exactly what could be happening and kempton bunton is a, a wonderful character so uh, all the films i've done is, i've had the more reaction from friends and family and and other from people getting in touch and saying they've seen it and loved it than ever before any other film i've ever done It's a, mm. it's been ex- extraordinary really and it's a, and i think it's coming at exactly the right time it's a it's a feel-good movie, but it's got heart and it's got a message, and it's uh, and it's very funny.
0: And why do you say at the right time, at this particular moment in time? Why? It's the right time.
1: Well, I mean, I, I suppose at any moment in time, we we need to be reminded that um, we're sharing this planet together, and we sh- should all look after it together. But um, particularly now in, in Europe, it's uh, it's. Become even even more obvious than mm. before that we've got to look after each other and be careful mm. and, uh, uh, what we do and what we say, and it's a it's um it's a a film that reflects that uh, need really. Mm.
0: And when Jim Broadbent looks in the mirror, what does he see?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I don't know really. Um, <coughs> I used to I used to pull a lot of faces and practice <laughs> <that>. <laughs> see seeing what other characters I could come up with. Nowadays, I just um, uh, just spend as little time looking in the mirror as possible. Uh, even get out before you see anything you don't want to see.
0: Either. Okay, thank you, Jim Broadbent, for calling in.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: And Charlotte and the Duke are out in release this coming week. And next, in the Arts Express screening room, a look at the legacy of violence in Hollywood movies, the case of the 50-year controversy of straw dogs. And in a way, you know, I feel closer to rats than I do to people. You know, I mean, even though I kill them for a living, you see, their dying is my living, you might say.
4: I've always been drawn to the idea of banned films and the notorious niches of not to be trifled with cinema. And it's not because I'm a glutton for thoughtless obscenity or the pointlessly grotesque. I just don't much care for the idea of people I've never met making arbitrary but all-encompassing decisions about what is and isn't suitable for mass consumption. The right to artistic expression is sacrosanct, we should be discussing the disgusting, debating the debased, not trying to sweep them under some subjective rug of morality.
5: Oh, won't
0: somebody please think of the children?!
4: Of these taboo-challenging films, few are spoken of with the hushed reverence and revolted retrospection of Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. A dramatic helter-skelter that became one of the most censored works of the 1970s, saw two cinematographers quit on religious and ethical grounds, and was banned in the UK by the BBFC until 2002. Fifty years on from its release, I'm going to try and sift through some of the shattered glass of this tough, transgressive work.
5: Why don't you just go make some coffee?
4: Our plot centres on English expat Amy Sumner, returning to the Cornish countryside of her youth, alongside her all-too-American husband, David. Not long after their arrival, tensions between the Sumners and this conservative community start to dissolve their marital bliss, culminating in two of the most infamous scenes to ever stain the pop-cultural landscape. Given the era it was released into, it's impossible to separate this film's fish-out-of-water anxieties and reflexive barbarism from the context of the then-ongoing Vietnam War. In 1971, the sight of ordinary Americans killing their fellow man amongst the greenery of a foreign land, under the guise of defending the homestead, was a staple of the nightly news. Straw Dogs just dressed these ideological confrontations in trousers and tweed, stoking the fires of distrust between smooth-palmed intellectualism and blue-collar subsistence. As far as the Sumners are concerned, their new neighbours are work-shy, regressive Neanderthals. To these close-knit agrarian folk, the atheistic, sexually liberated Americanization the Sumners represent stands as a clear and present threat of cultural erasure. Thematically, narratively, philosophically, there's a cutthroat conflict to every bated breath. Strawdogs is modernity versus traditionalism, the reactionary versus rationality, masculinity versus femininity. Yet director Sam Peckinpah never seems interested in choosing one side over the other. This is more a goading provocation than a cautionary tale. A study of sex, civility, and primal violence, presented with an almost inhuman detachment. Throughout much of Peckinpah's filmography, there's a disconcerting emphasis on the savage acts of man. Cross of Iron throws waves of mutilation at the lens, until glorification turns to disgust. The Wild Bunch finds pressure points in the space between honour and betrayal. Think of Peckinpah's violence as a statement against violence theatrics, as a more muddled prototype of what Michael Haneke would master a few decades later. Straw Dogs draws its cruelty along territorial lines of amplified masculinity, the childish notion that displays of machismo and aggression are the quickest shortcut to personal satisfaction. These muscular posturings, as seen in the quick-to-anger outbursts of bitter drunks and an extremely phallic round of woodland shooting, reek of desperation, even if their aftermath is pulverising and permanent. Peckinpah routinely falls back on his belief that men contain an inherently animalistic darkness.
5: I have a grant to study uh, possible structures in stellar interiors and uh, the uh, implications regarding the radiation characteristics.
0: Radiation, that's an unfortunate dispensation. It surely is. As long as it's not another bomb. You're a scientist, can you deny the responsibility?
5: Can you? After all, there's never been a kingdom given to so much bloodshed as that of Christ."
4: Over the course of the film, we watch David retreat into this primal state, leaving behind the complex reasoning of academia and callousing over his humanity.
5: Well, "-Stay there and do you If
1: you don't, I'll break your neck."
4: Straw Dogs is a harrowing document of fragile male egos and vile overcompensation, cut loose without guilt, or so much as a backwards glance to the horrors they leave behind. If the masculine contingent of this once sleepy Hamlet represents the war raging in the mind of man, then what of the supposed fairer sex? It's here, in its depiction of women and female autonomy, where Straw Dog's most troubling implications show their teeth.
0: Take your hands off me.
4: From the first gratuitous shot of Amy's braless chest, to the film's most infamous sequence, it's impossible not to ask, is all of this about misogyny, or is it just misogynistic? Well, in the most frustrating of contradictions, it's both. As an audience, we're shown two primary examples of femininity, the headstrong complexities of Amy, and the uncomfortable Lolita affectations of Janice. Amy is immediately established as a force of progressive sexuality in a regressive environment. A personification of the second-wave feminist movement, Amy stands out against a backdrop of unchanging patriarchal stubbornness. Her refusal to slide into the demure, seen-but-not-heard housewife role is an act of resistance, whether or not it's intended to be. Janice, the young girl this village tries in vain to shelter from women's liberation and sexual awakening, is first introduced alongside Amy, and dressed in a remarkably similar manner. With these points of comparison, Peckinpah is doing two things. He's letting us know that the antiquated values this village strives to uphold have already started to fail, whilst highlighting the flagrant hypocrisy of a group of men leering with judgmental arousal at one woman who is essentially dressed the same as their pure and precious ward. Whether they're defiled by it, or protected from it, lustful carnality is used to define these women. It's a blood-curdling montage of objectification, and it's this monstrous mentality that leads to one of cinema's most controversial sequences. The Rape of Amy. I won't be showing any footage from this because I can't, and I don't want to, the importance of this scene to the larger thematic marrow of masculine entitlement isn't the issue. What is, comes down to just how little the gratuitous, protracted staging of this moment pays off narratively or developmentally for Amy.
5: Fix the toilet and clean up the kitchen, that would be a terrific
1: help!
4: The men of Straw Dogs destroy one another and themselves through their own faults of hubris and phallocentric ego a fatal flaw that caused Pauline Kael to dub Straw Dogs the first American film that is a fascist work of art.
5: I will not allow violence against this house.
4: In the 50 years since its release, there have been torrents of trash that use similarly vile acts for unforgivably crass, exploitative titillation with no academic worth. Conversely, there have been efforts to address the failings of Straw Dogs, that respect and empathize with their female characters beyond the shallow genre conventions of victimization and reclamation. You'd think there'd be no better chance to recontextualize and reevaluate what Straw Dogs means than with its shiny 2011 remake. So, what changed when Sony Pictures dragged this material into the new millennium? Eh, almost nothing? Not since the US remake of Funny Games have I seen such a beat-by-beat attempt to simply teleport an existing work to a new geographical location. What minor changes it does make initially seem negligible. Cornwall, England is now the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and David's profession has switched from mathematician to screenwriter. These differences are only ever used superficially, which is a wasted opportunity and a testament to this remake's inherent redundancy. With the rest largely being a shot-for-shot recreation, missing the opportunity to address any of the criticisms of the 1971 original, opting instead just to make everything and everyone look much prettier. Oh, and for anyone who doesn't know why the film is called Straw Dogs, at one point the remake just hits the pause button so David can explain the metaphor for anyone in the cheap seats bunch of straw dogs. Straw dogs? In ancient Chinese rituals, dogs made of straw were used as offerings to the gods. And during the ritual, they were treated with the utmost reverence. When they were no longer needed, they were tossed aside, trampled on, and they became nothing. Thanks for that, Cyclops, you handsome bastard. For all its meticulous craft, excellent performances, and disgusting moral implications, what's the legacy of 1971's Straw Dogs? Much like its director, both present sustained notes of ferocious intelligence and envelope-pushing provocation that would alter the landscape of cinema for decades to come, whilst tarnishing its own insightfulness with boorish vulgarity and half-baked beliefs that wilt under the faintest of scrutiny, Whether I think it's a problematic masterpiece to be cautiously acclaimed, or a needlessly nihilistic wound that seeps with ideas it can't quite articulate, tends to change from one day to the next. And that's what's so powerful about this film, the fact we're half a century removed from its release, and folks like me still aren't sure where we stand. That's the legacy of Straw Dogs. A reprehensible masterpiece, and a culturally significant septic tank, We'll no doubt be reckoning with for decades to come. Until next time, this is In Frame Out.
0: And thank you, Paul of the polls, for In Frame Out, our best of the net hotspot on YouTube. And next up on the show, French centrist President Emmanuel Macron and his right-wing competitor Marine Le Pen have just emerged from the primaries as the two vie to be the next president. As for the French masses, in light of the ensuing uprisings across France, they don't want either of them. And reporting on what exactly is going down in France with both this contentious election and the economic crisis brought on there by the Ukraine war and Russian sanctions is Bro on the Euro Cultural Beat. Arts Express correspondent Professor Dennis Bro reporting from Paris.
3: This is Bro on the Euro Cultural Beat, breaking glass. Today's episode France, another victim of the endless war in the Ukraine. With Joe Biden calling for regime change on Russia's border, with arms pouring into the country and with charges against the Russians of genocide, the war in Ukraine, which those fanning the flames, most prominently the American media, seem to want to go on indefinitely, is having a devastating impact on all of Europe and particularly in France, where it's possible that war could help bring the far right to power in the presidential elections. Emmanuel Macron has spent the campaign appearing to be above the fray, unwilling to debate the other candidates, and simply presenting himself as, in the American parlance, presidential, in the French, kingly, the captain of the ship, the only one able to steer a course for France and Europe through the tempest of the war in Ukraine and its destabilization of the European economy. The argument, though, is beginning to fall apart as the two candidates who have most strictly hammered home the effects of the war on France's working people. Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen have gained in the polls, with Le Pen also gaining in a second round against Macron. Le Pen, though, has infused her sentiment for ordinary French with an unhealthy dose of anti-immigrant rhetoric. The most prominent immediate effect of the war has been an increase in an already rising inflation after French businesses raised prices coming out of the COVID confinement. Oil and natural gas prices have soared without Russian exports, as has the price of wheat, the ingredient in that staple of the French diet, bread, since Russia and the Ukraine produce one third of all the world's wheat. The increased cost of transport due to rising costs of fuel has had a crushing effect as well, not only on food, but on the price of all commodities. A lack of Russian raw materials also affects the metal and steel industry with a particular impact on manufacturing automobiles, as well as paper and boxes, to the point where lumanite Estimates the war will cost each French household 550 euros this year. The war will also impact French investment since the country is the leading foreign employer and second in overall investment in Russia. Meanwhile, Macron himself, has for most of the campaign, not only tilted toward but also outright copied the program of the right. He promises to return 7.5 billion euros to business, partially financed by a cut of 10 billion to local governments who have been the victim of austerity budgets. He has also pledged to raise the retirement age from 62 to 65, harden conditions for granting immigrants asylum, and, in a page torn from Bill Clinton's neoliberal regime in the 1990s, require those on unemployment to work 15 to 20 hours a week to qualify. Not a word in his campaign about a major issue in France, tax fraud. The presidential candidate, had no riposte to the two candidates nipping at his heels who continue to hammer home the deteriorating condition of the ordinary French worker. 2,000 artists, intellectuals, and culture workers in an editorial in Le Monde attempted to pull the always-divided left together by calling for a vote for Mélenchon, who they argued remains the candidate most focused on the struggles of working people, untainted by Le Pen's far-right blaming of immigrants for the country's problems. However, Macron's ignoring of the actual conditions in France— worsened by a war he has not done enough to stop, though he has attempted to resume talks, threatens to bring the disaster of a far-right victory ever closer. This is Bro on the Eurocultural Beat, Breaking Glass.
0: Express. Oh, the Lord looked down
5: from his holy place, said, Lordy me, what a sea of space, what a spot to launch the human race. So he built him a boat for a mixed up crew with eyes of black and brown and blue. That's how come that you and I got just one world with just one sky? We're in the same boat, brother. Yes, it's the same boat, brother. And if you shake one and you're gonna rock the other, it's the same boat, brother.
2: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. The name Earl Robinson may not be so well known nowadays as it once was, but in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, a huge number of Americans knew his music. He was the composer of The House I Live In, Joe Hill, Ballad for Americans, and many others. Singers of his works included Paul Robeson, Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Joan Baez, and Three Dog Night, His music crossed the boundaries of folk, Broadway, musical, classical, and even rock. Throughout his life, he was driven by a need to improve working people's lives, and he was a longtime member of the Communist Party, which resulted in his being called before the House Un-American Activities Committee. His autobiography, called Ballad of an American, written in collaboration with author Eric Gordon, was released in 1998 and has been out of print, but now... It is being re-released, and we are happy to bring you, through the permission of Eric Gordon, an extract from the book.
5: The house I live in, a plot of earth, a street, the grocer and the butcher, and the people that I meet, the children in the playground, the faces that I see, all races, all religions, that's America to me place I work in, the worker at my side, the little town or city where my people lived and died, the howdy and the handshake, the air of feeling free, the right to speak my mind out, that's America to me.
2: A moment out of time. For ten years since the late 1940s, when the House Committee on Un-American Activities HUAC started harassing Hollywood screenwriters and artists. You could never tell who the committee would go after next. Year after year, I waited for the other shoe to drop. On me. (laughs) Well, along about spring of 1957, HUAC decided to rake up some muck in the New York music world. For four days, beginning April 9th, Honorable representatives from several of these United States held forth at the federal courthouse at New York's Foley Square. Their subpoenas had fallen upon some 40-odd individuals. A few friendly witnesses talked about their days as communists in the ranks of Musicians Local 802, confirming what Huac wanted to hear, that these repentant former left-wingers now stood, quote, unequivocally opposed to every aspect of communist ideology." Huac reveled in these cathartic recantations that suggested nothing so much as a medieval auto de fe. But 37 of us provided a different kind of public theater. We refused to answer Huac's questions as to membership, former or present in the Communist Party claiming the right not to incriminate ourselves guaranteed by the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. Well, for most of those who took the Fifth, HUAC sniping resulted in an immediate loss of work and income. Except for the boiling oil and the stretching rack, HUAC was truly the American Inquisition. My hearing on April 11th, conducted mostly by HUAC staff attorney Richard Aarons, and brightened by occasional intrusions from Tennessee Rep. James B. Frazier Jr., California's Clyde Doyle and Missouri's Morgan M. Mulder lasted about an hour. The children's chorus I directed at New York's Metropolitan Music School attracted their attention, For Hueck perceived in music a particularly insidious and diabolical mechanism by which communists indoctrinate the young. Mr. Aarons Mr. Robinson, how old are these children you teach? Me. Between six and eleven and then a sort of teenage group that goes up to about fourteen? Mr. Aarons. Do you teach them any revolutionary songs? me. This is what I teach. The Ballad for Americans and The Lonesome Train. Some are my compositions, some American folk songs. Sometimes we go across the border and take a foreign folk song, too. And I explain to them that this is for the purpose of getting to understand other countries better. As uh, Mr. Doyle said the other day, music is an international language. Mr. Doyle, a, a universal language. Me. Pardon me. A universal language. Mr. Doyle, I am not an authority on music, but I know that much about it. Me. Okay. Mr. Doyle made sure I understood his well-considered thoughts on music. Well, for a brief moment in the National Spotlight, my entire and intermittently illustrious career in American music came down to one simple question. For the culture hounds, nothing else mattered. Was I a communist? Well, let us hear from our intermittently comprehensible representative again, and from my chief inquisitor, Mr. Doyle. Show me one poem or one song where you have deliberately set to music or otherwise that the American school children, for instance, or the Americans, shall support the Constitution and so forth. Do you see what I'm getting at? Me. I have a song called The House I Live In. That is America to me. It has sold millions and millions of copies. It has been sung by most of the big singers in the country at one time or another. This says, what is America to me? A name, a map, the flag I see, a certain word. Democracy. What is America to me? The house I live in, the plot of earth, the street, the grocer and the butcher, the people that I meet. In the middle section goes on the words of old Abe Lincoln, of Jefferson and Payne, of Washington and Roosevelt. Mr. Doyle, mail me a copy and I will pay you for it gladly. Me. Now, the biggest line in it is, a dream that has been growing for a hundred and fifty years. This has been sung. School kids know it. You should know it. Mr. Doyle, why then do you tear down this theory by this sort of thing? Why do you tear down the magnificent conception of our country? Me. I'm not tearing down. I have never torn down. Mr. Doyle, I beg to differ with you. You are. I say, mail me a copy of that, and I will pay you for it gladly. Richard Aarons had certainly (laughs) tired of this exchange and now began to wind up the hearing. Mr. Aarons, I want to clear the record on one thing, Mr. Chairman. Are you now a communist? Me. Do you expect me to answer that? Mr. Ahrens, yes, I would like to have you deny it while you are under oath. Me. I don't feel this committee has a right to pry into these kinds of things and also to try to make me seem subversive. When every bit of work I have done in my life has been in defense of America and helping America, I feel that you have no right to put me in that kind of light, and I decline to answer. The hearing shortly concluded. I left that dark courthouse moldy with the foul vapors of intimidation and strode into that bright American sunlight of a sweet spring noontime. Yes, I had been a communist for more than 20 years. And yes, I had done all within my powers as a composer and singer to ensure that my great country fulfill its inspiring promises to her people and serve as a beacon to the world. For this, they tried to make me an outcast in my home.
5: I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me, says I. But Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, said he. I never died, says he in salt lake joe i said to him him standing by my bed they framed you on a murder charge says joe but i ain't dead says joe but i ain't dead the copper bosses shot you joe they killed you joe says i takes more than guns to kill a man says joe i didn't die says joe i didn't die and standing there as big as life and smiling with his eyes joe says what they could never kill went on to organize went on to organize Joe Hill ain't dead, he says to me, Joe Hill ain't never died. Where workers strike and organize, Joe Hill is at their side, Joe Hill is by their side. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, said he I never died, says he I never died, says he
2: I've been reading from Ballad of an American, the autobiography of Earl Robinson, written in collaboration with Eric Gordon, soon to be re-released. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host, Prairie Miller.
5: The house I live in, the goodness everywhere, the land of wealth and beauty with enough for all to share. A house that we call freedom, a home of liberty, with a promise for tomorrow. That's America to me.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, You can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.